I'm, I'm having an identity crisis. <laughs> Scripture this morning is taken from Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. We continue in our series, uh, Fully Alive, the Christian Gospel in the Book of Romans. It's been, for me, a, a great series. We have a couple of Sundays left before we take a break because we'll be uh, focusing right on Easter uh, before Palm Sunday and then Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday. The topic of the book of Romans, as we've told you, is the Christian gospel. And uh, it's outlined clearly there, and we have had a a great time um, walking through the book together. If you're not part of a home group, uh, we have home groups that meet, well, there's one Monday, there's group Tuesday, there's group Wednesday, there's group Thursday, and there's a, a youth home group as well on Thursday. So there's plenty of options. And what it can tend to do is take the material that we're looking at and really um, bring it to life in, in the conversational context where you're working through some of these things and able to say, well, I, I've seen this a little bit differently or this really stood out to me. And So if you're not part of a home group and you'd like to attend either all the time or from time to time, you can speak to me or um, anybody else you know that's, that's in a group. So this is the slide I've been putting up each Sunday morning. Just as a reminder, the goal of human life is not death but resurrection. It's a gospel statement. And those key points that first the, go- the gospel is not first about you, thanks be to God, or everything else in our lives. We're told that it's about us, but really it's just about sales often. Um, And then secondly, that the gospel is not first about now, that it's more than now. It's something that is a long time before and exists a long time after us. Kind of takes the pressure off of us, hey, when when we think, well, my life doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, It doesn't, not everything has to work out and that's okay because God is on the throne. The gospel is even bigger, 
are much bigger than me, and that these two worlds come together, humanity and divinity in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Today we look at Romans 5, 1 to 11, and originally I was going to do all of chapter 5 together, but we're separating these, we're dividing Romans 5, uh, 1 to 11 with the rest of the chapter because uh, you can see these steps here. You probably can't read the words, but this is how I picture the book moving. Just goes up and up and up. And, and by the time we get to the second half of Romans chapter 5, it's just way, way up there with the words, how much more, which you heard in Ron's reading or as Ron read the scripture to us, but you hear it even more in the second half. If this is true, how much more this? How much more this? How much more this? It just builds to this um, uh, wonderful, wonderful strength. But I want to start today by talking about pronouns. In your day-to-day, the pronouns that you use to speak matter. They will bring a certain response. Let me give you an example. So picture a hockey game and team doesn't play very well. Uh, we had one this week. If you're a Canucks fan, they, they played like the worst team in the league, the Buffalo Sabres, and they lost 6-3. to three. They just dogged it. They just looked terrible. And imagine in the interviews afterwards, because for some reason, uh, sports now is 24-7. They can talk about a given game nonstop. And they're interviewing somebody on the team, maybe the captain of a team or some, some other uh, leader-type player on the team in the dressing room afterwards, and they say, what went wrong out there tonight? And the captain or whoever says, in referring to the rest of his team, well, they just didn't play very well. They use that pronoun. What would you think about the captain? Or the goalie says that, because the goalie can't score, usually. The goalie can't. So the goalie says in reference to the rest of his team, they just didn't play very well. They didn't have the energy. They didn't play a 60-minute game. What would you notice? You would notice, first of all, most of all, the pronoun they. Right? Instead of, well, we just didn't play very well. Now, that pronoun change, and you know, in well, think of it with church. How are things going at the church? Well, they're going pretty well. Now, imagine me as the minister saying this. They're going pretty well, but they just don't read their Bibles enough. They really don't come to church enough. Or they, I mean, imagine that. Or if I say, even if I did do think that I read my Bible enough, said, well, we need to grow in some areas. Hear the difference in pronouns? Very, very different. It says a lot. Now, some people, sometimes there can be just kind of, uh, I think sometimes pronouns can can come out. I see working with uh, people in early stages of dementia or whatever else, sometimes we lose our, our pronouns. But for the most part, you notice the difference. And the book of Romans, Paul changes pronouns from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So he's, he, a good part of the introductory section, he uses the pronoun I a lot when he's explaining things, introducing the gospel and beginning to talk about the wrath of God, which we've talked about as you turn away from God, those things that you turn to, things that aren't eternal, will eventually just swallow you up. I don't have to draw the picture for you. This is how our world works even today. He uses I a lot, and then he moves to they in some of the talk of the wrath of God. This is what they are like. He uses that pronoun. Then he uses the pronoun you, particularly when he's talking about religious sin or the fact that if you count on your religion and your religious observance, that's the same thing as if you tried to live your life apart from God, if you think your religion brings you a particular standing. And he'll say you because he's speaking to this church. 
By the time we get to chapter 5, where we are now, the pronoun that is just over and over and over and over again is we. We this, we this. There is a coming together. Consider how this feels. In the description of justification by faith, which we looked at last week when we considered Abraham. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But now Paul takes this justification by faith and says, this is what I have? No. This is what you have? Not even that. This is what they have? Nope, not that. This is what we have because of justification by faith. It's an identity marker. It's great this morning that we had the example of Ron taking on the first, uh, three different people, James, Jen, and Ron himself, because this is an identity sermon. But the interesting thing in the Christian faith is that you can't get to an identity. Now, this is unlike the rest of the world. When we talked about validating performance records last week, you know, resumes and academic records and such, those are I things. Look at what I have done. And that's generally how our world today works. You have to prove yourself. Your identity is, is I. Now, you can't understand your identity wholly as a Christian with, the, with the, that pronoun, with I. It's always we. This is who we are in Christ. There is some truth in saying, this is who I am in Christ, but you can never stand on that ground for long. It always goes to the plural. Remember who you are, remember who we are. A great novelist, Wendell, or sorry, Walker Percy. Uh, he lived, well, do I have his quote here? No, I don't. I'll just read it for you. Uh, he, was, he was born in 1916. He died in 1990. And he was one of these guys who was a novelist and a Christian and spoke about his faith a good deal, wrote everything from kind of um, almost memoir-type or, or self-reflective things to almost strange kind of science fiction, but not quite that. Um, and, and he, in speaking about the culture, born in 1916, died in 1990, put it this way, when you think of identity. He said, we live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because in spite of great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he's doing. You just do the things you're supposed to do, told you're supposed to earn money to get some kind of security, have all these markers as to what you're supposed to have in life, feel terrible if you don't, if you don't meet those, feel like you have less than somebody else, or terrible if you suffer some kind of tragedy in your family. But nobody is really telling us who we are. Just go, just keep moving. So this is what the book will do. These are the steps that I gave you. The bottom step, if you can't read it, it talks about the introduction to the gospel and as he's talking about the wrath of God. The second step, this one could be way up as well, but for the graphic, we'll keep it here. But now a righteousness from God has been revealed. There should be, if I drew this correctly, it should be the bottom step there and then the top one would be you know, above the roof. Like it's not an even step. First, we're talking about the introduction to the gospel and how the wrath of God works as we turn away from God. And then, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. Put that one above the roof of this building outside, and then we can keep going up on the other steps after that. So 321, a righteousness from God has been revealed. And chapter 4, let me tell you, Paul says, that this is always the way that it's been, even with Abraham, even with David. David, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then verse 23 of chapter 4, and it is the same for you. 
you trust in Jesus Christ. So that's another step up. And today we get to this identity. Here are the implications of justification by faith. Who Here is who we are in Jesus Christ. This should be the thing that we're helping our kids learn, like a, kind of the, the feeling in this place. It doesn't mean you have to directly teach all the time. But when you see a child in this place, when you see, you shouldn't think first of all about, is that a good kid or a bad kid? Is that like behavioral things and all these things? The first things, that, the first things to think are simply this. Who are we in Jesus Christ? And how can we, even for people at a young age, even for people who don't know their identity in Christ, how can we live that out to remind people of who they actually are? So today, here's who we are. And as I said, it can't be determined with a pronoun I. It doesn't mean that you can't tell people, young people and others, that they have particular talents and gifts and abilities, that they are in and of themselves gifted and at sometimes remarkable. But we can't fully understand our identity with an I. I like this. I can do this. I achieve this. And our world, as I said, is majoring on this now, where sometimes this is all that's left in our description of ourselves. I'll tell you what I like. Or, you know, if you, any kind of media now, you've watched this, so you might like this. Just going on nothing but your preferences. Or I achieve this. So here are the statements of our identity. And this, I, I think this is the last slide for today. That doesn't mean we don't have some material to go through, but there you are. Here's who we are. Firstly, now this should just kind of be over this space, but into our minds and hearts. Let me tell you who we are in Christ. Firstly, we have peace with God. Secondly, we stand in grace. Thirdly, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I think the word in the, in the, in the translation we read today was we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. Fifth, we shall be saved in Christ. And finally, over all of this, this is verse 11 of the text, we rejoice in God. You clearly notice one thing to start, and that is this word rejoice. It's explicit in three of the six statements, but it's present in all six. The mark of Christian identity, you could argue that this is the mark beyond many or all other things. The mark of Christian identity is joy. It doesn't mean that there aren't Christians who are more serious or somber-minded than others. We all have different temperaments and personalities. But the mark of Christian identity is joy. Joy means a freedom from being weighed down from the things of this life. Wendell Berry, another uh, favorite writer of mine, he's a farmer in, in the American South, kind of an organic farmer. He was way ahead of his time. Uh, and, uh, but he also writes poetry, and he's a Christian. Uh, I was reading last night uh, in a newspaper article, actually, and it wasn't uh, a, a Christian writer quoting this, but, but the people who know literature, like current literature and poetry, know Wendell Berry. And the writer quoted him with this line. He said, Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. I like that line. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Now, I know that he's a Christian man, and I know that in his heart and mind, in a sense, he's saying, I am joyful because I know who I am, who we are in Jesus Christ, even though the world may tell me otherwise. So these six statements have joy around them, each of them. Firstly, 
we have peace with God. Peace is far more than a, quote, pleasurable sensation of happiness. Peace is not simply absence of strife, but peace, as Daniel Berge and others often remind us, peace is shalom, wholeness, completeness, an awareness that all is well and all manner of things shall be made well. And in this text, peace comes through belief and trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done. This is the assertion that the human heart has a longing within it. And you can see this longing in your own life and in the lives of your family and your friends. In a sense, you see the lack of peace. You see a sense of not ever being kind of quite stable is the wrong word, but how are you? I really am fine, thank you. The longing of the human heart, the struggle in Scripture between flesh and spirit, and the peace comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. In our world, peace is fickle. It's something that at times can be achieved. We have peace for a time, or we have happiness or rest or whatever it might be, but then we need to go back on vacation. Some of you have had this when you come back from vacation and people say to you, I've referred to this before, well, you must be well-rested, and you're mad at them for saying it. And then you already, as soon as you're done, you think, well, I, need to, I can't wait till I'm back again to get that sense of peace again, something that is given to you at particular times. This is not the peace that's being spoken about here. This peace doesn't come only at particular times. We have in our lives, in our identity, peace with God, the creator of the universe. All is well. Secondly, we stand in grace. Through Jesus Christ, this is the language of the text, we have access into, it, it could be thought of as a particular space, a space that's defined by grace. We sang it, grace, grace, God's grace. We have access into this kind of area almost, you could think of it, this, think of it as a room or whatever, but a space that is defined by grace. And before, we had no way to get into it. It was locked off to us. But the the. the, the thing to consider is that the action of Jesus Christ, and it's the action of Jesus Christ that gains us access into this space. By simply trusting in him, we have standing in grace. And the action of Jesus Christ does not depend on some stirring of our spirits. In other words, my belief is what gives me access. No, it's the work of Jesus Christ that gives me access. Now, to actually accept that access, I believe it and enter in. But it's not my action that gets me in. Through Jesus Christ, we have access into a place, a level, a ground, a space of absolute freedom and grace. I'll give you an illustration in how you could think about it. I'll I'll ask you to raise your hands to this and then we'll all be upset at you. I won't. Don't raise your hands, please. (laughs) Have you ever been in a business class or first class lounge in an airport? Don't put your hand up. I've, I've been in one twice. Uh, once when the only way to, to book uh, a ticket was through air miles and we had to do it. Like, anyway, each time not of my own doing. Let me put it that way. And for those who have never been in one of those spaces, I don't want to tell you what they're like because it's just going to make you angry and the revolution will come earlier. How do you get access into a business class or, or first class lounge in an airport? I have no idea how. 
I just got in. Actually, I know both times, but I don't want to tell you. Anyway, I, how do you have access? What's the thing that gets you in? Somebody holler it out. Yeah, you got to purchase it, right? Now, I guess you may get it through miles or whatever else, but it, it's, it's remarkable just to think of that. To think that the thing that gets you access to this particular space is... I mean, you couldn't maybe say, well, it's the achievement and the achievement brings money. I don't know. In the end, it's if you got enough cash to get the ticket, you can get in. It would be cool if just for a few weeks we tried, around the world, we tried a whole other way. They announced for two weeks there's going to be new access to airport lounges. Just going to be random. And you show up and, nope, you got an economy ticket, so you're going to have a miserable flight. But guess what? You've been chosen to be in the lounge. You know? Here's, here's why I'm using the, the example. If you try to get into one, go try that with the wrong ticket. You're not going to get in, probably. Although there might be ways. But anyhow. The place that we have been granted access into, freedom and grace, is of so much more worth than anything we could ever ask or imagine. And how do you get in? Purchase religious points, Coins that you get because you memorized a verse. You get in because Jesus Christ saw you and said, You, I love you, will you enter in? I've already done everything that you need. Come in. And you just go in with him to a space that I could never describe for you. We. This is what the scripture is saying. We have been granted access. Now, the... The hard thing for us to understand is that the thing that makes it special is not that it's exclusive. It's that anybody can have access into this place. The thing that makes it special is the one who brought us in. And we say to everybody else, you can come in too. Imagine a place like that. We don't enter on our own merit. Thirdly, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope in this world can be so small. I think of this in my life, you know, because most of the time, I'm, I'm like you, or maybe you're better than me, but I'll just describe what I'm like. I most of the time just hope things will work out for me pretty well, in my family, those that I love and I'm closest to. And I can, my anxiety or fears can often be around that. You know, what's my future going to be like? Am I going to be able to provide enough? And what if this thing falls apart or that? And my hopes are often those kinds of things. And sometimes when I get good news that it looks really like, oh, hey, things look like there's some real future in that. or whatever, All of a sudden I can feel better for some time. And then something else happens and you think, no, nope, it's over. It's all over. And your hope is kind of assailed a little bit. Or health things, you find out news, whatever it might be. Or hope that you've put in a relationship I'm not saying those aren't real things. They're real, and, and we can feel them. But on one level, they're small. They're certainly smaller than what would be understood as Christian hope. Christian hope is bigger and more joyful and more confident. It's the expectations and the promises of God to Abraham that I will bless you, I will, I will make a family from you, for you, and from that a nation, and from that I will bless the whole universe. In other words, the hope that we have the hope that we are rejoicing in is not simply about our lives. The object of our hope 
is the glory of God and the kind of God, the character of God, which is self-sacrificial and giving and loving. This is not some tyrant king demanding our worship. It is not some reign saying, you know, one day you're going to worship me. And the Christian faith can be presented in such a way. The interesting thing is, when it's presented in such a way, it ceases to be the Christian faith. But there you go. That one day everybody is going to, you know, whether they want to or not, they're going to darn well. This is not how our God works. We hope in the glory of God that one day in a world that is absolutely riven with power and distrust and violence and hatred and fear, the God who has given himself for the life of the world and whose power comes in that sacrifice, that's the God who will be glorified above all else. That's our hope. That the way of the world was not the victorious way. The way of fear and distrust and suspicion. We hope in the glory of God. Hate will not reign. Death will not reign. Emptiness will not reign. The glory of God will be revealed. And we already can see the first fruits of this where, of course, the answer is we can see this in Jesus Christ our Lord. His character, His sacrifice, His love, His way of treating people, even outsiders. There are no outsiders in Christ. Jesus Christ will appear with power and glory. But the power and glory, as soon as we say that, it's like, we win. It's not that way. Please understand that. And all those suckers who didn't believe it, they lose. Jesus Christ will appear in power and glory as what? The Lamb who was slain. And we will be changed in believing, glorified into His holy people, Even, and you're going to hear Romans work this out as the book continues, even all of creation, you know Romans 8, right, will be liberated from its decay. This is an enormous promise. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We walk down Grand Boulevard, we try to find a parking spot on Lawsdale, whatever else it is, but this is our hope. The glory of God over all. Now the next one's the toughest one for you. We rejoice in our sufferings. It's hard to say this one without a tear in your eye. Some of you have suffered tremendous loss already in your life. What on earth would it mean to rejoice in our sufferings? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Suffering is a word of great fear. I don't really know anyone. I mean, I suppose you could have kind of a... a, a character trait where you just want to hurt yourself, but we would think of that as some kind of dysfunction. I don't know anyone who truly wants to suffer, but here in Romans chapter 5, sufferings are taken as a given. We rejoice in our sufferings. There are two thoughts. I want to give you a little bit of biblical teaching here, interpretation. There's two thoughts around this word suffering. And what it might mean. Does it mean that God wants us to suffer? Probably not. But what on earth does it mean then to rejoice in our sufferings? One commentator, one of the biggest uh, theologians in, in Christian history, has put it this way. When you come to these words, he says, these words rend those to be babblers who desire all Christians to be strong and none weak. Those are strong words. His interpretation and others of the text is that if you are saying to people, 
we're not supposed to suffer, or that that's kind of outside of, of God, then he's saying, you have become a babbler. That's pretty strong. Because there is suffering in the world, and I think his fear is, if you start to tell people that there's not, you begin to give a lot of false hope and a, a, a bit of a, dis, a, a wrong picture of what the Christian life means. That's one view. Another view is to take these words and say, well, clearly what's being spoken about in this text is persecution and suffering that comes from without. So we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we face suffering because we don't have the same way that the world has, and we are to rejoice in that suffering. Now, I'm not here to tell you particularly which view to hold. I'm here to say, and I mean this, thankfully, there are people in this church who see both ways. I don't think this is a foundational Christian thing. You have to have this view or you're you know, outside or whatever. But certainly in a, in a church like this, there would be people who say, well, we're not supposed to suffer and, and we're supposed to have a life of strength and we don't have that right now, so we need to look at why. We're grateful for, for that view. But there's also the view, which I'm grateful for as well, that says, you know what? This is kind of what life is like. There's a lot of suffering, and it's okay. And maybe we should help you try to discern the presence of God in the midst of that. And I don't know if that suffering will be removed or not. How can you have both things? Well, there we are. What do I think? Do you want to know? I mean, whose team am I on? Honestly, I see both. I also, I know that Jesus Christ suffered and that every key character in Scripture suffered. So I I can still fit that into either way of thinking. The peace of God is not contradicted by our suffering. In fact, some of the people that I know who've had the strongest faith have expressed that faith, discovered sometimes that faith, and lived out that faith in the midst of great suffering. Redemption occurs in the midst of upheaval and amid chaos, the chaos of unredeemed humanity. But it is unredeemed, and, and that, it's that lack of redemption that, that allows the suffering to be there. What I mean is that one day all suffering will be done away with. We know that. But on this earth, in our life, here we are. But in this text, after that presentation... This text is not really looking at, you know, why or why not is there suffering. What this text is saying is that suffering can lead to, the word for it would be focus. Suffering can lead to a single-mindedness, a perspective of what is really important. Suffering can lead to endurance or perseverance. That perseverance leads to character, and that character leads to hope. (coughs) Think of, again, sports analogy. A team that loses. You ever watch these? And if you care about the team, it becomes even stronger. You're watching a sporting event. It's Game 7 of basketball or hockey or it's the Super Bowl or whatever. You can't use this year's Super Bowl because Seattle won last year. But this would be a team that makes it to the very, very, almost to the end, and they lose that final game, lose the championship, and then they're on their hockey sticks or they're crying on the side of the field or whatever it is. That's a feeling of great angst and pain, sorrow, some kind of suffering. But what may it produce, it doesn't always, it often produces perseverance and character and hope so that if we ever get back here, which is not a given, I will have grown from this experience. 
Suffering can lead to these things. Fifth, we shall be saved through Christ. This one might be the most, it's not controversial, but, but in, in a church that, that would more often say, we are saved through Christ, this language I have here on purpose. Because this is what the text says. We shall be saved through Christ. The tense is what's interesting. It is not simply, we are saved in Jesus Christ. My reading of this was most particularly interested in John Stott, who is a champion of, of evangelical theology. Um, and John Stott said this, and you can think of this in a Baptist or a Brethren or Mennonite or whatever background. If someone comes up to you and says, are you saved? So some of you remember the question used to have a little more currency. Are you saved, brother? And you would say, well, yes, I am. Stott says the actual answer, the the best way to answer, first he says the best way to answer is no. Oops. Because he says we are being saved, what does that mean? So then he, he, he fills it a little more. He says the best answer, of course, is yes and no. I'm saved. I've trusted in Jesus Christ. But I am being saved. We are being saved. This salvation is being worked out. There's a one day to it. We are eagerly looking forward to full salvation in Jesus Christ, which at least on some level right now, we don't know. A time where there will be no tears, no suffering, no sorrow, where life will be full and abundant, complete and whole, where there will be freedom and joy. Are you saved? Yes. Not yet. I guess that's it. One day. One day I'll know. And finally, we rejoice in God. Verse 11. What do you rejoice in in this life? Family? It's good. Work? That's good. Money? That's not good. Money's okay, just not to rejoice in. It's not a good... It can't hold your joy. Leisure? That's the one people rejoice in a lot right now. Leisure. Some relationship or some status. The end of this text that covers the whole thing is that the reason for my joy comes not from any temporary thing. In Christian understanding, including this would include even my love for my friends or my family, that in a, on a human level, my love for my friends and my family cannot be eternal. It does not outlast us. But as it is a reflection of the love of God, it is something that can last and live on. So my love for my friends and my family becomes not only informed but transformed by the love that I know in Jesus Christ. I'm never called to love my family less in loving God more. Don't believe that. As I understand what it means to love God more and first, I am called to love my friends and family even more than I could ever think I could. But we rejoice in God. I heard this. I, I had to drive today because these will, in a few minutes when we take communion, these are temporary cups. We've run out of plastic cups for communion. They were supposed to come in this week, and I just found out last night, late, that they didn't arrive. And so we were, what are we going to do? So I called another minister, Robin Jacobson, a friend of mine, and I said, do you guys have any cups we can use? And he said, well, anyway, long and short of it is, you got different cups. Now here's the thing. They're glass. So if your muscle memory is those trays, I mean, we might have some spills here. It could all be crazy. 
if you like to crush the glass when you're done, you know, like that, you know, you're going to cut yourself if you do that. But the reason these are, the reason I was driving around is I was driving, because normally I just walk up on Sunday, but I had to drive to North Lonsdale to get these. And uh, I was listening to a, a little bit of the news, and they had the funeral, clips from the funeral for that three-year-old boy in Ontario who died, Elijah, uh, the young boy who died. Uh, he wandered out of his, his grand, grandmother's house thinking, I'll go home to see my mom. She's a nurse. She was working the night shift. And this three-year-old boy died. He did look like he was just full of joy and life when you see the pictures. And I, the service, I'm sure, was a great service. But I found myself yelling back at the radio at one point because the minister um, said, she said, now as we sing this song, let's sing it to Elijah. And I went, oh, it's just a slip-up. Probably something that I could do, she might be saying. But I thought, no, 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 no. In hoping the best for Elijah, you sing to God for Elijah or thinking about Elijah. The praise is not to Elijah. The praise is to God. So for me, even in my family, I love my family so much, but I rejoice in God. And that brings everything else to life. That's what's being spoken about here. We have peace with God. We stand in grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice even in our sufferings. We shall be saved in Christ. And we rejoice in God. And then while we were yet weak, we were, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us before we had the ticket that would get us in. And then there's no ticket needed. Just faith in Him. Everything shines in the light of the death of Jesus Christ. Everything is illuminated by it. I can know this peace because Christ died for me. I can have this standing because Christ died for me. I have hope and meaning in my life, not because of my own achievement, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's the Christian gospel. He has not left us alone in our unredeemed humanity. I have no need... If I do, it's, it's what I do to myself in my life to prove myself. That struggle is done in Christ. I want to, I asked if I could do this and, and I was told I could. I probably would have done it anyway, but. Some of you know Lois Carter. I'm looking over here because Lois plays organ, and piano and everything for St. Timothy. She's amazingly gifted. Lois is married to Paul Carter. Do you guys know Paul? Do you know Paul's story? Some of you do. Paul was actually the minister of St. Timothy's. Ken was like the little assistant. <laughs> Did that sound... <clears throat> I mean, he was like a nothing. <laughs> Ken, that sounds terrible. I do love Ken, but it's just automatic that I make fun of him. Um... Paul was the, the founding minister of St. Timothy's Church. And at the same time, he founded another church in Vancouver, Emmanuel, which is a church, church kind of on the east side. There's a wonderful ministry in Vancouver. Paul uh, got his MBA in, in England. He also was a colonel in, in the British military. He was a parachuter. This guy is, I mean, he's proven himself. I remember one time, one of my first encounters with him, super friendly, intelligent, humorous man, was he, was a, he would teach courses now and then out at Regent College and, be, and participate with other profs. And I went out to some 
event and there was a lunch or something or a course out there years ago. I think at the time I was just on my way to go to St. Andrew St. Stephen's, leave here as a youth minister and go there for a while. And I was nervous and I thought, oh, and I was kind of looking for advice from anybody that I trusted and I knew of this man. And he was getting his meal one day. We were lined up at some, you know, event like that. And, and he started talking to me and he realized who I was. I don't know how. And he started asking me about my life and and, and I, I just was, was really, really um, grateful to have his input. I asked him a couple questions, and, and I, I really learned a lot, even in those couple of minutes, just more from his presence then. Well, Paul, uh, I don't know how long it is now, a number of years ago, Paul was at a conference in Florida. And, I mean, he's, he's a parachuter. He was working out uh, in the hotel gym on the treadmill. And he had a heart attack. And I think for some time they didn't really know if he'd make it or not. I think he was in the hospital in the States for quite some time. But what did happen was that there was some deprivation of oxygen to his brain. And he suffered injury that is long-term. And if you see Paul now, I mean, he usually sits near the front at St. Timothy's. And he looks just as nice as ever. So kind of gentle. He'll smile. You can greet him. But he's lost a great deal of the memory function, short-term memory and others. He needs assistance for some of the most basic tasks in human life. But he's, he comes each week. Lois, Lois would say that it's, it, it's totally different husband than before. There's been great suffering, great suffering. Ask Lois about the story or, or their daughters. But what's interesting, there's many interesting things about Paul, but one of the interesting things is and I, I often think of this when I see him. Hi, Paul. How are you? You know, because you're, you're, it, it feels like you're the stronger one when you're greeting. Like you're, you've got more ability or whatever it might be. And then I remember this guy was that guy that I talked to at Regent that I just needed help from. Same guy. And uh, Paul, one of the interesting things about him is while he's lost a great deal of his memory, when theology or worship, like hym- hymnody comes up, comes right back. He knows the creeds, the liturgy, another blessing of the liturgy. You start speaking the liturgy in, in the church and Paul's right there with you. I went to the Ash Wednesday service at St. Timothy. Some of you were there as well. There, there weren't that many, but, but there were a number of people. And they had a lot of liturgy and had their ceremony and, had their, and, and they had a number of hymns that they were singing. And it, I realized... I think Lois was playing that. Yeah, Lois was playing. And there's not like a, a leader, like a microphone and drums and guitar like that. And I thought, and, and it dawned on me, somebody in this congregation is leading, but it's not from the front. It's a voice that I hear in every song, and it is so clear, and it is so right. And I looked over and across, and normally he sits up here, but he was sitting back there towards where Faye is, and I was sitting over here, and I looked across and I realized, Paul Carter's leading the singing. Every word. These were the words he sang, one of the hymns, called Lord to Thee Alone. Lord, to Thee alone we turn, to Thy cross for safety fly. Hear us as for help we plead. Aid us in our time of need. In the midst of sin and strife, in the depths of mortal woe, teach us, Lord, to live a life fit for sojourners below. Guard us, In that darksome hour, lead us to the land of rest. 
when secure from Satan's power, we may lay upon thy breast. Here's the truth. Paul, me, Paul and you, we have peace with God in Christ. That's why it's a we. It's not I. We have access to this place of grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And every time I do it, I do it not just for myself alone, but I do it for people like Paul, and he does it for people like me. And we know what it means to be justified by faith. I pray we'll turn to our time of communion. As we move to communion, we do so through a portion of the service that we call this bright sadness. This is an Eastern Orthodox reference to the season of Lent. Each week we take up a symbol of Lent and add it to the table by the cross. And this week I'll move up there just a moment after I pray the chalice. Let's pray together. We remind you as you take communion that we say this is a table of inclusion, not exclusion. You are welcome to receive the communion, the bread and the cup, if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. Heavenly Father, as we take this communion, we ask that uh, you move our hearts towards becoming aware of what it means that our life is found not in our achievement, not in any identity that we have in this world, but that our life is found, our life together, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Forgive us our sins. Help us to learn what it means to trust in you. May we come to you, Lord Jesus, knowing the salvation and the life that is in you. We hear this. We take this bread, your body broken for us. We take this cup, your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we say thank you, Lord Jesus. Ushers can come forward and then I'll finish.